you would take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter number one. You may be wondering why Revelation. I mean, we were almost done with the book of Mark. Just 12 more verses. We were almost there. Um, well, portion of the, the primary reason is, is I haven't got that portion figured out yet. That's why. Um, some of you may or may not know there are some, there's some major debate over the last portion of the book of Mark. Um, some would actually argue that it's not original to the, to the apostles. And some pastors and preachers actually determine not to preach that because they don't believe it's a part of Scripture. Um, some take the opposite view and say that it is. God's people have received it throughout the ages. It is a part of God's word. Or let's, let's, let's read and preach it. And then within the, the passage, there's some, some debate over the actual content. So, uh, Lord willing, I'm going to take a little more time before I actually uh, preach that text or come to a conclusion on it. So you pray for me through that endeavor. Um, in the meantime, I've been compelled to come to the book of Revelation, not as a whole. I'm not ready to quite tackle that animal yet. Um, but I do feel compelled to, particularly over the next two months, focus in on chapters 2 and 3. Um, today will be somewhat of an introduction to that, and then the next seven weeks, um, possibly more, probably not, um, we'll spend some time in the um, letters to the seven churches. I think it's something that probably needs to be preached to us often, something that I need to read often and pray that the Lord applies that to my own heart, um, often throughout my, my Christian life. One of those passages of scriptures that need to be frequented um, possibly more than others simply for the practical um, nature of it. So if you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. And I'll pick up my uh, reading this morning in verse number nine and we'll end at the um, end of the, the chapter in verse 20. Um, the Apostle John, by the Spirit of God, writes these words in verse number 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were, like white, were white like wool, and white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Let's pray. God, again, we come to you just to um, thank you for the word of God and just how precious it is to us, Father. Of all the gifts that we could revel in this morning um, in, in in light of your common grace, Father, none compare to the Word of God um, and its activity in our souls. So, Father, would you send it forth now faithfully? Um, God, would you send it forth with your Spirit, 
would you accomplish, Father, um, only what you can accomplish. Um, as the hymn writer wrote, and we sang just a few moments ago, speak, O Lord. And would it be this morning as if Jesus Christ was here um, along beside us and with us, Father, um, and speaking the very word of God to us. Because I believe that that's your design. And I know, Father, that that's your will. So may you speak to us this morning, Father, through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. And I just want to say, um, uh, I forgot that today is, I, didn't forget, I forgot to mention that today is the third um, Sunday of the month, and we generally do the Lord's Day Supper, the Lord's Supper during that time. And we do have that planned for the end of the service. Uh, generally, it takes just another 10 or 15 minutes. And I always want to encourage you to prepare your hearts for that um, as we approach the table um, in light of 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11 and what that means. So um, prepare your hearts. And now to the text. Uh, the book of Revelation is an interesting book. It's a mysterious book to most people. It's a curious book. Um, and, to some, and to a lot of people, it's a scary book. Um, if you were to, to survey and poll churches and they have, as to what they want to hear their pastor preach and teach. Um, it's came back time and time again that the number one book that churches want to hear about is the book of Revelation. And there's a number of reasons for that. Yet at the same time, they poll the pastors and say, what's the last thing you want to preach? And it's always the book of Revelation. Um, wrapped up in it um, is, is just symbolism, it's metaphors, it's um, allegory, it's parabolic in nature, um, it is apocalyptic literature. Um, verse number one of chapter uh, one says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. And that word there, revelation, is, is literally the word apocalypso, it's where we get our word um, apocalypse from. Um, it, is, it is speaking of a revealing, an unveiling of some mystery that had prior been um, un, or had been veiled. That's the idea within the book of Revelation. Um, many people steer clear of it um, for a number of reasons. And it may be because over the past century or so, um, or at least in our age, I talked to many Christians and even many pastors who are just... I'm scared to death to even approach the book. It's almost as if the book is unapproachable. Um, as if it's wrapped up in codes and in language which the common man and even the common Christian um, is unable and cannot understand. I've even heard some pastors and preachers stand up and say, not until our generation has this been able to be understood. You know, and what they mean is, is that they are utilizing um, common day um, events and things going on in the newspaper and what's happening in the nation of Israel. And those things didn't happen until now. Thus, uh, we didn't have the key to unlock the book of Revelation in, 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 the, in the fullest of senses. And therefore, God has just bestowed upon us liberty within the book of Revelation like never before. And I find that hard to believe. Why? Because in chapter number one and verse number in chapter number one and verse number three, we actually have John here say, Blessed is he who reads. And he who hears the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is at hand or the time is near. That John had a message not only for the church 2,000 years removed, but John had a message for um, the, the, the New Testament church uh, that precedes the uh, New Testament apostles. 
that he's writing during his age and he's writing to seven churches and the church at large in such a way that he actually commends to them that they are in the last days and that the church, I believe what he's insinuating here and implying is is that this book can be read, it should be read, that it can be understood, it should be understood, and it should be a blessing to God's people throughout the ages. That's a, this, is a, this is John's beatitude here. You remember the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Blessed is he who is humble in heart. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are um, this person and that person. And there's a reward attached with that. Um, the, the same idea is here. John is writing and he's saying that there are, is a blessing contained within these 22 chapters um, in which the people of God, I think, I believe throughout the ages are to be the benefactors of and it is up to the church to read it, to seek to understand it, and when applicable, to actually keep those things that are contained within uh, this prophecy. And there may be some debate over the largest portion of this passage of Scripture, but I really don't believe there's much debate at all as to what we're going to tackle this morning or in the next um, several weeks. And that is the first three chapters of the book of of Revelation, particularly chapters two and chapters three, where our emphasis is going is going to be. There has been some debate over the nature of these seven churches, and that's the idea here that John is receiving a revelation, an apocalypse, an, an, an unveiling of a reality unknown to the church until that time. And in verse number eleven, as well as in verse number twenty, um, he gets his charge that in this vision that he receives, he is going to write letters to seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And that these seven letters are going to be um, seven letters that are going to um, offer several things to the churches at large. There's going to be commendation. There's going to be comfort. There's going to be exhortation. There's going to be rebuke. There's going to be correction. And there's going to be the warning of ultimate judgment upon those um, who do not um, stand the test of time and who will not repent. And while there have been some debate over the nature of these churches, there's really not been a whole lot. Um, there has been some in the sense of, are these literal churches? I think this morning we can say with confidence that these are seven literal churches. I mean, these churches were literally um, alive during the time of Jesus, or uh, the time of, of John the Apostle. And he writes. And these, these churches are aligned and they're, they're addressed in some sense in a, in a geographical manner. He begins at Ephesus. And what you'd say is that the, the, the New Testament postal route, it would have progressed chron uh, geographically throughout. And thus, as John or a messenger is to take the letters to these seven churches, he would first hit at Ephesus and then he would hit Smyrna and he'd work his way through the seven churches and that these churches would be, these letters would be read among the churches and the word of God would be proclaimed personally, particularly to these churches. Now the debate has been, again, whether these are literal churches or churches symbolic of periods of time. Some look today at these churches and they say Ephesus was somewhat around the time of the New Testament church. They were thriving, but they lost their first love. And that today we're in the church of the Laodicea, the last days, a lukewarm church. There may be some truth to that. But I think that what we have here are seven literal churches, particular churches. 
um, in which John writes, and it's interesting that these are the only seven churches that he writes to. Why? Because throughout Asia Minor, there were a whole host of other churches. That, that these are churches that God has ordained that John would write to particular messages. Why? Because they needed to hear from Christ. Yet at the same time, why is it recorded in such a fashion? I think it's because these churches are in some sense representative, not necessarily of churches through church history and periods, but because these seven churches could very well represent any, um, any age, any generation throughout the world, um, geographically and historically. I think in the years uh, in the, first, the fourth century that Jesus Christ could have looked down and found a church at Ephesus. He could have found a church at Smyrna. He would have found a church at Laodicea. That in 600 AD, that he would have looked down and geographically as the church is proliferating throughout the world, that he could have looked down and that these words would have been just as applicable in that day as they are in this day. And not only corporately, specifically corporately, meaning he's speaking to churches, yet at the same time, he is speaking to individuals. Why? Because churches corporately are made up of individuals. That, that not only are there churches alive who carry these attributes, and thus the rebuke and correction or the commendation. Um, throughout church history, there have been uh, these types of people in every church. Maybe not every single one um, representative in every single church, but no doubt there are churches that are struggling um, with losing their first love. And there are individuals within those churches that are struggling with losing their first love. Or they've allowed and tolerated certain sins in their lives. Or they have totally embraced sin. Or we find people that are lukewarm, apathetic, and indifferent alongside sitting in front of the same pew as someone who is being persecuted for their faith and just thriving because God has opened a door that no man can shut. And He's evangelistic and zealous. And that within churches, there's no doubt that churches um, ultimately um, are assigned this type of, of commendation or condemnation because they are inevitably made up of people who carry these types of attitudes, attributes, characteristics, and patterns of life. Thus, the book of Revelation, even particularly in its clarity, chapters 1 through 3, are extremely applicable to you and to me as we engage the church of Jesus Christ here in Kingsport, Tennessee, and, and it is applicable throughout the ages and will be until our Lord's return. Thus, it is imperative as we read this passage of Scripture that we examine our own hearts, we examine our own church, we examine our own lives, and may God speak to us today, this very moment, and in the coming weeks, just as He spoke to those almost 2,000 years ago. Now within these seven churches, what you find is just a panoply of churches that are on different perspectives. And that is a comforting thing to know. No church is perfect. And churches are on, different pro are on a process called sanctification, just like an individual. That you look in this church and what you'll see are people at different places. And that we are not to quickly throw men or women or people, couples, under the bus necessarily and push them outside of the church because we disagree on certain secondary and tertiary peripheral things. That if you have a church 
Um, what you should have is a group of people that have came together, surrounded by, uh, centered on Jesus Christ, and that are on all different levels of sanctification. We don't bring them in because they ascribe to five points or to a creed or a confession, and they're 99% like we are. We bring them in because Jesus Christ has converted their souls and saved them by the grace of God. They are blood washed and born again, and they need to be discipled. Thus, they come into um, the, the, the reality that the organization, the, the, the organism today that we know as the church. And that's the same with churches as well. And what we have here contained within this passage, um, these few chapters, there are a number of churches that are at different points in their Christian lives and in their church lives. Yet our Lord um, looks at each one of them and fellowships in some sense with each one of them and calls them on to further their sanctification in God's grace. Even those that aren't um, warned or judged in the same sense as others, He pushes them on and urges them to remain faithful. And as you continue to digress, what you see are, is warning after warning and condemnation after condemnation to those who repent, to, to, for them to repent. That one way that you could catalog the um, seven churches is in the sense of cataloging them in geographical manner, as we'd already mentioned. But in another sense, you could catalog them um, in digression. And you could even look at them in some sense as the life of the church, even unto death. You ever wonder that? Why is it that so many churches are closing their doors? Why is it that there's no church today in Ephesus um, like there was in that day? Why hasn't it made it 2,000 years? Why are, why are churches in some sense dying? I can't give you... Um, clear cause of every single church that closes its doors. But maybe I can give you somewhat of a pattern that I think we find even within the seven churches um, in which uh, over the next seven weeks we'll look at. And that if we identify ourselves in that moment or in that church, and that we can take our Lord's instruction and turn and continue to progress instead of digress, I mean, to decline in ultimate apostasy. But that's what you see here in this passage of Scripture. Again, that, they're, they're, that you can line them up um, geographically, almost in a horseshoe shape. As, as, as John would go out, he would ride, and he would meet all the churches and deliver all these letters. Yet at the same time, you can organize them in some sense in a digression and a decline of, of morality as they embrace false teaching and ultimately sin. Thus, that leads to their death. So I'm not arguing that every church that closes its doors follows this pattern. But I am arguing that this is one pattern in which um, it's very clear that if we carry on in it, we'll lead to the demise of the church. And thus, um, we are to turn and to repent. And I'm going to give them to you quickly. I'm going to give it to you quickly because we're actually going to look at each church over the next couple of months and then give you actually the, the primary emphasis of this sermon as we lay the foundation and I hope you'll afford me that but what you have here are seven churches you have seven churches that either receive commendation or um, rebuke and warning from our Lord uh, within those seven churches two receive no condemnation and no warning not that they're perfect churches but that they are faithful churches those churches are the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia 
The church of Smyrna, we, we read of in Revelation 2 and verse 8. The church of Philadelphia, we read of in Revelation 3 and verse 7. And what you find here is God commending the work that they're doing. There's no warning. There's no judgment. There's no rebuke. There's no correction. There is instruction. Why? Because God's people always need to be instruction, instructed even if they're faithful. And in chapter 2 and verse number 8, the church of Smyrna, we see is a persecuted church. This is a church that's thriving. This is a church that's on board for what Jesus Christ is here to accomplish. You read the book of Acts and what you find out is that a church that is active in its community and has a vibrant faith is a church that inevitably when it hits um, the, the, the doors of the world and they open and fling and they preach an actual gospel um, that, that saves and, ca- and carries the power of the Spirit with it and they uphold a, a standard of God's Word and they uphold a standard of holiness um, is, is engaged by the world in a trying way. This is a persecuted church. This is a church that is in love with Jesus Christ, is carrying out the mission, and you know what? Um, They are being tried beyond measure, Um, even to the point of death at times, what the text tells us. Not only that, but you read the church of Philadelphia. Again, a faithful church that too is being persecuted, but our Lord commends them in Revelation 3, beginning in verse number 7. But but ultimately, just to, to read to you verse number 10 why because you have kept my command to persevere i will also keep you from the hour of the trial which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth verse number eight why are they commanded because even with a little strength you've kept my word at the end of the verse and you've not denied my name indeed i'll make those of the synagogue of satan who say they're jews or not but lie indeed i'll make them come and worship before your feet and you see this tremendous promise because of the faithfulness that God is going to keep them, even in the midst of trial and tribulation, persecution, ultimate martyrdom, stay faithful. But these are the types of churches that we ought to desire to be. Not a perfect church, but on the road to sanctification that we are pursuing faithfulness in Christ and and ultimately what God desires for us to be. Um, Not aiming for big and great goals according to marketing standards and what the world thinks that a church ought to be but aiming for what God has laid out and commanded for us as a church to be. But then you begin the digression. Five other churches. Um, So you have two churches that receive um, instruction and commendation. You have three churches that receive some commendation and some warning. And then you have two churches that receive no commendation and they just receive warning and judgment. So it's a pattern of two, three, and two. No, no, No condemnation. But, but encouragement. Three who receive both. And then two at the end um, only receive warning and promise of ultimate judgment if they don't turn. Number one in the digression is Ephesus. That we moved from persecution and faithfulness and tribulation in, in chapter two and verse number one. And what we see here is a church that is, verse number two, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God, or I'm sorry, I'm reading out of chapter three, verse two, chapter two and verse one. Um, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not. And I found them liars. You persevered and you have my patience and, and, and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, what that you have left your first love. That in the digression to total apostasy, it begins with a lack of faithfulness, 
Not only, not necessarily in the area of external um, adherence to the activity that God has prescribed, or even a a, a personal adherence to, uh, or a, a departure from um, from sound doctrine. But it begins in some sense with the affections of the heart. It begins with the inner man. It begins with an adherence to um, externals without the appropriate compelling of or motivation of what is to be accomplished. So here what we see is we see a church that is in every respect a, a seemingly a faithful church. I mean, it is a church that, that if you read the passage of Scripture, their doctrine is right, their mechanics are right, they're being faithful externally, um, they're, they're putting out false teachers. I mean, somebody comes in, you're not going to get a foothold in Ephesus. The, 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 the pulpit's guarded, the lectern is, is on lockdown. Um, there's not going to be anybody that comes in and takes over the teaching or preaching ministry of this church. But God has this one thing against them. Um, that, that all that that is is external. And this is probably the scariest one. And it's scariest uh, in part because it is the, the first step in the, the digression and decline of a church. Um, that God says that externally you can be somewhat pharisaical and having everything in order um, according to the law and what God has prescribed, yet at the same time you can be outside the bounds of, of orthodoxy, orthopraxy. That it matters to God not only how we serve, but it matters to God why we serve. And why we serve can actually nullify how we serve. In the sense that if it's done detached from and compelled by Christ, and it's just a, a cog with wheels on it that, that moves and functions and programs like any other organization or any other animal, um, then, then he says, you keep going in that direction and I'll take the light away. I'll remove you the light from the lampstand um, is the idea. Number two, step number two. So you, you lose your first love. Number two, you... Pergamos, chapter 2 and verse number 12. He writes to the angel that is at Pergamos. Um, Pergamos is an ungodly city. Um, it is a city that is just filled with emperor worship. At the center of it was Caesar. Um, and you understand just the difficulty of being in a, a church like that. But what you find within the church of Pergamos is now um, they have embraced the, the uh, teachings of Balaam, the teachings of Nicolaitans. Um, and they've allowed, in some sense, false teaching to enter into the church. And it's false teaching that's attached to immorality. And the idea here is, is that we'll see in a few weeks, is that as that is tolerated within the church, sin is tolerated um, within the church. You lose your first love, your love will wander around in the world, it'll attach itself to something that it finds pleasurable, and it'll accrue a value for that, and you won't want to lose it. Um, ultimately, they're falling into idolatry. And it begins with tolerance until a full-on embracing of sin. So Pergamos, what you actually begin to find is they're, they're now allowing false teaching within the church um, such that it is, it is gripping some of the people with immorality, sexual immorality, and the church is doing nothing about it. They're, they're commended for several things. But he carries on to say that if it continues down that way, judgment will come. Step number three is Thyatira. Two, uh, chapter 2 and verse number 18, we meet a church there that has now not only tolerated sin within the church, but it has totally embraced it. Um, there's a woman there by the name of Jezebel who is allowed to teach. 
and preach and hold an office, it seems, within the congregation. And again, it just carries on with more sexual immorality and ultimately idolatry. Uh, fornication and idolatry is probably akin to 1 Corinthians 10, where they engage in pagan feasts, they engage in temple worship, and then going over, they go over and they take the table of the Lord and they think it's all going to be fine. So what you have here is, is a blending now. Um, you, you have this loss of first love. You have this worldliness where now you're, you're, you're synchronizing with the world. You're, you're taking on um, the world's attitudes. You're, you're, you're allowing certain things that you would never would have allowed um, if you were compelled by Christ into the full embracing of sin. Now it's taken the pulpit. It's taken the lecterns. And teaching is allowed and the church is doing nothing about it. And they're carrying on like they're a church. So it's not like total pagan, um, they're lost in total pagan idolatry and transform the church. No, they're lost in sexual immorality. They're lost in idolatry. And then they walk over and they take the Lord's table. And what does God do to them in 1 Corinthians 11? He says there's many that are dying because of it. Why? Because they're abusing the table. They're sharing in the table with demons, meals with demons. And they're also pagan sacrifices and they're engaged in sexual immorality and then they think they can just enter into the house of God and worship Him like nothing's gone wrong. So now there's just this total embracing of sin in the life of the church. And we can get up in arms all day about Jezebel. But the reality is, is that the church is under judgment because they want it. They allow it. They don't do anything about it. Holiness is... is, is is a theological uh, perspective and uh, a right opinion. Yet at the same time, there's nothing being done about it. It's, the church is under judgment because the church is given the task throughout the New Testament in Matthew chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and in other places that when false teachers ascend to the place of prominence within the church, they put them out of the church. And that this false doctrine is not always attached to or is not always in the form of something explicitly wrong, but often carries with it a lack of holiness and a, a license to sin because of the grace of God. That's the great judgment that comes upon them. That they are lost in sinfulness. Why? Because this woman is teaching that it's okay and they abuse the grace of God. They abuse Christ's sacrifice. And it allows them to embrace um, un ungodliness and a worldly type of mentality and attitude such to the point that now they believe that they can have God and mammon too. They believe that they can live, um, have their cake and eat it too. They can live for God and live for the world. And God is gracious. I mean, He'll understand, right? And that's what you see here in the third church. Uh, the, the fourth step is chapter 3 and verse number 1, the church at Sardis. What you find here is a church that has a name that it's alive, but it's dead. Um, there's nothing but form at this point. There's nothing but routine. There's nothing but program. This is a church with activity, but, the, but no spiritual activity at all. It has a name that it's alive, but it's dead. But even in the midst of it, there are a few, verse 4, a few names even in Sardis, and he encourages those few names. So it began with just a few in opposition and ungodliness to the point that it gripped the whole church, and now there's only a few faithful that are left. And it culminates in step number 5 in Laodicea. The church that is apostate. Verse number, uh, chapter 3 and verse 14, you find a church that we're probably all familiar with. What is it? It's a church that's lukewarm. Um, they're gone. They're apostate. Um, God would rather them be cold or He'd rather them be hot. He'd rather them be utter atheists or He'd rather them be um, on fire for the Lord. 
but, but that which nauseates him such that he's ready to spew it out of his mouth is a bunch of lukewarm people who carry the name of Christ, who are indifferent and apathetic in relationship to the Gospel and what God has called them to do. Thus, um, they believe the rich, yet they're poor. And they've totally abandoned God, yet carry on some sense of formality. Doesn't seem to be anything good about this church. Um, seems to be a total apostate church. And God rebukes them and calls them to repent. And it's so bad that up to this point, we've seen God in activity with the churches. But in this church, He's actually outside the church. He's not present among the people. And that's why He says, I stand at the door and knock. Essentially, no one will let me in. That Jesus Christ is clearly absent from the activity of this church in a complete form. Thus, we see seven churches. Two that are faithful being persecuted and carrying on for God's glory. And then we see a digression of churches. From that moment, one that has lost its first love um, becomes tolerant of worldliness such that you begin to bind the morals and the mores of the world in with the church. Why? Maybe for church growth. Maybe for this or that. Such to the point that now, when sin is not dealt with within the church, false teaching creeps in. Uh, false teachers gain ground within the pulpit such that um, it, it overwhelms the church. And, um, and you have a church that has a name that it's alive, but it's dead. Um, to the point to where God says, I'm no longer in that church at all. I have no people there. And it nauseates me. And I want to just spew that out of my mouth. And that's Satan's plan, isn't it? You know? I mean, it's so sad to hear. You hear churches closing the doors day in and day out. I mean, it seems like a, an average thing today. And it's an average thing. Why? Because this is what, um, this is what Satan desires, right? I, I'm not a guy who is you know, overly um, charismatic and looking for Satan under every, um, every drop of a hat or under every stone, but there is a reality that that He is a roaring lion seeking whom He may devour. And that we are to flee from Him. That we are to not allow Him uh, the provision of the flesh, not to have a foothold um, within the door. And the reality is, is that every single church that ever enters into existence from a local perspective and even universal um, has to deal with the reality that, that a month from now, two months from now, a year from now, He would love nothing more than for this, ba this, this band of believers to dissolve and to, um, and to be absorbed into some other body or no body at all. You know, the last two years, three years have been just um, have just been an example and illustration of that. We make it through one of you know seemingly the most trying times within uh, the, the church life and my generation as the church is 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 opposed as the church is brought um, under attack and even persecuted not as much here in America as in other places but even in America in many places and what do we find we find churches falling apart we find churches dividing over peripheral issues um, and we find people who have left the church and they're not returning to the church two to three years later. They've learned to live without it practically and functionally. Um, they can get whatever they were getting there um, from their, their YouTube channel or this or that. Um, and they're fine with um, leaving and abandoning the congregation. And you know what? That's exactly what Satan desires. Um, but really, that was happening before in some sense. You know, um, as people embrace a false idea of what church ought to be, 
um, and building up kingdoms and buildings of their own um, and not really adhering and clinging to God's, God's design. And that's what we want to do here. We want to cling to God's design and to live out His desire and understand what He commands and what He condemns. You know, if you were to ask this morning, like, what, what do I desire in a church? What am I looking for in a faithful body of believers? And you were to poll, you know, congregations afar throughout America, and they've done this. And they've birthed the seeker-sensitive movement out of it. And they've given them their desires. But what would be yours? Many want just a thriving youth ministry. Many want a thriving children's ministry. Many want a a great choir, you know, just, just wonderful outreach or this program or that program. But it's interesting that you come to this portion of Scripture and none of that is mentioned. None of it. Out of all the things that God could have said is wrong with your churches, He doesn't bring up much of any of that. You know what He brings up? He brings up holiness. He brings up the things that, 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 that make Him uh, cringe, if we could use that terminology for God. It fails to even begin to describe how God looks at something like that. But with the language limitation that God has given us, He, he looks at some churches and He wants to literally spew them out of His mouth. It nauseates Him. Why? Because this is a lifeless people, an apostate people, a people who carry His name yet, yet allow anything and everything to happen within the church. They, they attach themselves to the morals of the world. They embrace sexual immorality and ultimately idolatry. And God says that it's, 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 apathet- it's pathetic. And you allow that thing to go on long enough and I will not allow you to go on anymore. That God is active within the realm of His church. And He commends certain things. And He upholds certain things. He encourages certain things of work and labor and love and service and faith and growth. And that the type of church that we are to be is a type of church that, that is that. It's holy. It's holy not in the sense of all the things that we abandon, but it's holy in the sense of all the things that we cultivate here at Christ's Bible. You know, It is the type of people that God is cultivating as they abide in Christ and Christ abides in them through that union and communion. They, come to, they become the type of people who are zealous for God's name such that they are willing to live and die for His name's sake. I think it will be astonishing as we go through these portions of Scripture as to exactly what He upholds and what He condemns. And we are inevitably um, called to examine our own lives. And ask, am I, am I pleasing to God? Am I a part of God's church? Am I a part of a godly church that God would commend to an egg on for the glory of God? Or am I a part of a church that is on the demise? And that doesn't necessarily mean abandon ship, but to call that ship back to course, to uphold what is faithful, to, to, to wave the banner of righteousness and grace and holiness and justice. But the question I want to present to you this morning after a long introduction is how do we do that? If you could boil that down in one, in one activity, in one principle, could, it might be oversimplifying it. And maybe it is. How do we guard against that? How do we foster that? How do we cultivate that? And we're going to go through, and I'm probably going to list 20 things, 50 things, you know, as we go throughout the seven churches, that when this thing happens, this is what we are to do. 
Right? We're not to allow this and we're to, to pursue that and, and this and that. But, but at the end of the day, how do we do that? Right? Like, how is that even possible? We just to muster up our own strength or to get together and just formulate a committee on, on how to prevent apostasy? Like, who wants to be a part of the apostate committee? You know, that whenever people come in and, and, and we're guarding the flock and, they, and they, 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 they procure a plan and let's run for it. Like, is that something we need to do? Are we to just study apostate churches throughout ages past and see why they declined and, and, and formulate a, a plan that whenever this happens, we're going to make an action? And if it doesn't work, then we're going to reformulate the action plan. We're going to talk afterwards. What is it that keeps church on par? What is it that, 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 that keeps church faithful? I'm going to argue it's, it's, it's basically this. Foundationally this. Um, that it is those churches in which Christ's presence is made known. That Jesus Christ is active among His church. That, that's the point, I think, of Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. That whenever you come, that, that, that Jesus Christ is the one who keeps His church. That Jesus Christ is the type of man who dies for His bride. And just like you men who are faithful fathers and faithful husbands, that the moment that your bride is under attack, what does He do? He is actively engaged in the, because the relationship demands it. That what we find in Revelation chapter 1 and all throughout Scripture um, is a God who cares for us. Do you think you love this church? You don't love it even a fraction of what Jesus Christ loves it. I gotta take ultimate confidence this morning, you know, that, that in my failures, Jesus Christ will not fail. That what we have within the congregation of God's people is God in Christ Jesus through the power of His Spirit actively engaged in the, in, the, in the activity of His church. That He is this morning ministering to you and to I as He walks among the lampstands. And that's what you see in chapter 2 and verse 1. You see, Christ is the author. Christ is the one speaking. John didn't look at the churches and see apostasy running wild and he thought, I'm going to formulate a plan. No, John receives a vision. From Jesus Christ Himself compelling John to take it to the, to, the, to the churches. Why? Because God has a word for them. This isn't John who had a great idea. This isn't John who, who sees them falling off in apostasy, although no doubt he's moved um, to, to, to reach out to many of these churches or men and women if he would have understood the nature of what they were engaged in. Yet this is not John with a, with a plan. Um, this is God. This is Jesus Christ with a word for his people. And that's why in 2 chapter 1, he's identified to the angel of the church at Ephesus. These things, he, it says, he who holds the seven stars at his right hand. This is Christ speaking. He's the one who walks in the midst of the golden, uh, golden lampstands. He's the one. And then what we find here in verses 9 through 20 um, are a. Uh, are, is a representation of Jesus Christ actively engaged in the ministry and in the life of His people. And that's what John writes here. Verse number 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. That John is on Patmos. 
He's been relegated there under persecution and tribulation. And this small little tiny rocky island, chances are history writes that he was even boiled alive prior to that and lived through it. John's been through it. He's been exiled. He's been punished. Um, he's been left for dead. And it's there on the Lord's day that God meets him in the spirit and presents to him this glorious vision of Jesus Christ and ministry and serving his his church. And the first vision that we really begin to see is in verse number 12. He says, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. It's an amazing, astonishing. If you, I, I want to encourage you. We're, we're running through this today. We're going to get down to the nitty gritty in the next few weeks. But I encourage you this week to, to go back, be a good Berean and just meditate on this passage. Why? Because John is just floored to the point to where he's going to be as a dead man in just a moment. Why? Because he's out on Patmos. God reveals to him something, unveils uh, the very nature and character of God in a loud voice that astonishes him. It says the voice of a trumpet and reveals to him things that, 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 only are, are, that, that we could only imagine. And in the midst of that, um, after the voice, no doubt he's scared to death, he turns, he's got his back turned, verse number 12, to see the voice that spoke with me. Not to see him, but to see where the voice is coming from. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Seven golden, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Listen, this is no other than Jesus Christ. This is no other than Jesus Christ in priestly and kingly apparel, governing His church as priest and king. That in the priestly apparel, we find the garments no doubt linen garments is referred later in Revelation chapter number 14. The priest would often wear a girdle that contained gold um, that is uh, the, along the sash that would keep up his um, robe that he could be active and move fluently within um, the realm of, of the, the temple or the tabernacle. But, but part of the reason we understand it as priestly attire, and probably the primary reason is because of the context. Um, we see him moving among the lampstands. That these lampstands are emblematic and no doubt carry an old covenant connotation because within the tabernacle and the temp temple, there was a lampstand with seven lights upon it. Um, and that in Exodus chapter 25, verses 31 through 40, what you would find is that the priest is to run, is to actively on an multiple times a day on a daily basis um, be active in the temple trimming the wicks adding the oil removing the waste or the ashes and it is his one goal um, in that among that lamp to keep the light burning that's the idea old covenant john would have have proclaimed this to his people and what would have no doubt entered into their mind immediately is Aaron the high priest or one of the Levites active in the temple, keeping the light going all the time. This was his one of his functions. This was one of his um, responsibilities and great privileges. And what it would do, it would eventually symbolize as here um, the prophetic fulfillment of Jesus Christ, our great high priest who actively engages among the lampstands to keep the lights burning. That's it. 
Like Jesus Christ to this day is still among his people, present in the word of God, present in the Lord's table, present in the fellowship, present in the waters in some significant way such that he speaks to his people and keeps the light burning. That's the idea that Jesus's presence keeps the light on. And it happens in a whole mode of ways we're going to see in the next several weeks and months. That he does it through encouragement. He does it through instruction. That he does it through chastisement. He does it through correction. And he does it through rebuke. You can look at it this morning and take it um, as in some sense, man, God was really harsh with those people. As you read of the church of Pergamos or Laodicea or uh, the other three. Yet at the same time, what you could conclude is that that is Jesus Christ loving His bride keeping the lights burning, thus that the gates of hell will never prevail ultimately against His church. And what we see here within the lampstands is explained later on in verse number 20 that the lampstands are the seven churches. Under the Old Covenant in Zechariah chapter 4, we see this symbol or this emblem of the lampstand again. And this lampstand is, is analogous to the nation of Israel. Seven candles burning, one people of God. I think what he's arguing there is that even in Revelation chapter 1 speaks of the seven spirits of God. I think it's a quote from Isaiah talking about the perfection of the spirit. And what you have there is you have God active within the nation of Israel to keep the light burning. And the meaning is simple, right? Um, that God's people are to be a light to a lost and a dying world. There be a light to the church, a light to the community. Why? Because fundamentally, if we have God, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If they were to be Israel, the old covenant light of the world, and it seems though that most often they couldn't. Why? Because they couldn't resist being attracted to and becoming like the world. Their lights dimmed and ultimately went out totally darkened. I think in 70 AD, as, as God puts out the light of the temple forever in utter destruction. Yet at the same time, formalizing a new covenant in which God in Jesus Christ would keep his people and keep their lights burning until his return. And here we have not just seven or one lampstand with seven lights, but we have seven lampstands. And it could be, and this is speculation, I don't say this on any authority, but it could be that it is because of the nature of the new covenant that it would not only be formulated in one people of God under the old covenant, but that it would split into all the worlds. And now what we have is a multiplicity, a panoply of God's people made of every nation, tribe, and tongue as one like the Son of Man would come and give His life a ransom for many. That, that, that it would spread throughout the nations. That there would not just be one, but it would be made up of bodies all throughout the world. And that these lights um, would be the light of God in the midst of the darkness. And that God would be truly present among His people in Jesus Christ through the perfection of the Spirit of God. And that's exactly what you find here. Not only these seven golden lampstands, but one in the midst of them. Clothed with a garment, a priestly garment, down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And his hair was like white, like wool, as white as snow. And we have one of the, the, the most glorious images here of Jesus Christ. Um, and it's not so that you can go home and draw a picture of what he looks like. 
That's not what John is saying here. He's not saying literally that, that he is like this. What he's saying, he's like, he is as this. He is like this. It is to communicate some truth about him to us. That his hair was white like wool, as white as snow. And almost all of these images are pulled out of Old Testament Scripture. Like the, uh, the, 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 the wool or the, the hair like white um, would have been um, a, a, no doubt a, a, a reference to wisdom. That Proverbs 16.31, Proverbs 20 and verse 29, throughout Leviticus 19.32, that shall rise up before the hoary head or the gray head and honor the face of the old man. That, 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 that it is Proverbs. It is the, glo- the, the crown of glory upon a man's head is his wisdom. And that the gray hair, the white hair would have indicated that. That what we have here contained within Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And it is the crown of His glory. It is as white as snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Um, it is like the, the piercing uh, vision into our souls. Daniel chapter 10 and verse number 6. His burning eyes speak of the divine insight into our very core and being. It speaks of His judgment and, the, and His ability to judge the earth. Why? Because He can see into the souls of man. His feet are like fine brass as refined in a furnace. Again, Daniel 10 and verse 6. It was shimmering and glowing. It wasn't like the statue of Nebuchadnezzar that was mixed with clay and iron and weak. It was, it was pure. It was righteous. It was strong. It was able to hold a man up and to keep him standing. It was a voice like that of many waters. You, know, you think that the, 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 the Niagara Falls thunders and brings to you um, some sense of awe. You have ne- it doesn't even compare to the awe that John must have felt when he heard the voice of God. Able at any moment to consume him. His right hand, he goes on to speak, and no doubt symbolizes authority and power. It was generally the dominant hand. It would be the hand of power and authority. The seven stars. Those whom he holds in his right hand. And out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. No doubt a reference at least to Isaiah 49 verse 2. It speaks of of His ability to judge with authority. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Isaiah 60 and verse number 19. And He extends that light, that ineffable, inexhaustible light to His people in some capacity that they too may radiate the glory of God to the only begotten full of grace and truth. John, what do you think about that? He, verse 17, I fell at his feet as a dead man. I fell at his feet as a dead man. You know? He didn't walk into the room, recline in the chair, kick his feet up and say, hey dad, how's it going? No, he was astounded and astonished at the vision of God among the people of God and His activity among the churches. Such that the only response is in Ezekiel's uh, pattern and in, in the old covenant pattern with Ezekiel and Isaiah and these other men, he falls as a dead man to the ground. Why? Because he sees this one who radiates with ultimate wisdom, with power, with purity, with holiness, with this total otherness. And he, he sees the eyes peering into even John's soul in such a way that he can hide from no man, he can hide nothing from him. Even that very moment, John must have felt um, the size of a piece of dust in the relationship to the, the presence of God. Because not only is this glorious picture before him, 
But it is communicated to him. And as his eyes pierce forth, John must have known that there's no cave or crevice or, or, or ounce or inch of, of, of real estate on this earth that he could hide from such a holy God. And that's who's here this morning. That's him. That's him. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from all from, from, from the, before the foundation of the world, who entered in to die for sinners like you, left His glory and His majesty, but the Father, and, and because of His faithful obedience to carry out the work that He had commanded, glorified Him and put Him at the right hand of God the Father, um, where He's ruling and reigning and given a kingdom out of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And this is Him. This is He. He's not just a, a simple little rabbi, you know, and a, and a weak man, you know, who died under the rebellious um, uh, aptitude of, of Israel and, and Rome, you know, some little fledgling who couldn't who couldn't um, defend himself and died as a martyr. He's more than that. He is so much more than that. Again, that's the one who walks even among the lampstands today. You know, I am convinced that churches die throughout the nations and have died in every generation and every history such that they have relegated God to some smaller than this or they have relegated Him to somewhere other than this. Either this morning we have no, um, no, no uh, gravity of God uh, or we, we have no holiness this morning. That would be the question. That's the peripheral issue here, though, right? Like, why is sin being allowed in the church? Like, why is it running rampant? Why does Jezebel get the opportunity to stand? Nobody does anything about it. I mean, it mocks the grace of God. She's, she's mocking the Word of God. I mean, she's allowing sin running rampant within the church. Um, how in the world can that happen? You know, and we could go to a whole host of reasons of, of administrative breakdown, but the reality is, is that, that either they have a wrong view of God or they don't even believe or they don't believe that God is there. It's similar with my kids, you know? And that's why he gave his parents, that's why he gave them parents. You know? I can sit in the room with my child and 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 give him an order, and I, as long as I'm there, man, there's no issues. But as soon as I walk out of the room, they think that they have the liberty and the authority to do whatever it is that they want, you know. And that's the reality with any church, right? That a church that thrives for the glory of God, a church that that preaches the gospel unapologetically, a a, a church that 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 um, that that preaches in such a way to receive persecution and tribulation and ultimate martyrdom. The only way they could do that with any confidence is to understand the priestly work and the presence of God. And, And we don't just we don't just become holy by our own might. You know, we just don't we don't become more holy because we have a, a list of rules and standards which everyone must follow. We become a holy people because he is holy. He is holy. You know? And the reality needs to be made known this morning that 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 that, that this is the, the, the living, sovereign God who has ultimate authority with piercing eyes, who is the very wisdom of God and feet like shining brass, pure in all of His holiness, that this morning He walks up and down the aisles and He knows your hearts. And He knows mine. You know? 
And if we can go home or in this in this church, if we can live in such a way um, as if as if, you know, he, he, unholy lives, then it's, then it's either because we have a false view of who God is or we don't believe that God is truly there. Because when we are in his presence and we realize that we are in his presence and not just the presence of God, but the presence of this God, then it moves us to holiness. And it's, it's in accordance with Leviticus and first Peter, be ye holy. Why? Because I am holy. And holiness is born out of the presence of God among us and the presence of God in us. And it provokes us to abandon sin and to, and to, to adhere to a, a right doctrine of God. And to love the truth because He is the truth and to exuberate life and to, 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 to light because He is the light. But that's the idea here this morning. That John must establish authority before he ever gives instruction. That's why he begins with God. Why? Because he's about to say some good things, but also some hard things, some difficult things that they need to hear. And he needs to establish the authority by which he is saying this. Thus, he gives them his vision. John's just not writing a vision because he thinks that it's quirky or nice. You know? Like it's not just something that's extra. It's something that is foundational. That, it, that revelation is foundational to this portion of Scripture. It is the hub, the center of which everything else in Revelation turns. It is the foundation upon which the trials and tribulation of God's people, yet the comfort to God's people because of ultimate victory will stand. You know why they stand in the end? You know why victory comes? Because Jesus is in the midst of the lamps. He's the one trimming the wicks. He's the one filling the oil. He's the one removing the waste or the ashes. And if this church will thrive, if this church is going to survive, it will, it will not come by the strength of men or the cunning craftiness of pastors and preachers. It will come because Jesus Christ is here. And He's active within the, 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 the preaching of the Word of God. He's present in the table. The Gospel is, is forefront and paramount. This is the reality. And that if, this, if the gates of hell will not prevail against it, then we, we rest not in our strength, but in the mediatorial office of Jesus Christ at this, day, at this moment. He is not only in the heavens interceding for you and me, um, but He is here even now. Did you come this morning expect, expecting to truly hear from God? Or is this like an Ephesus? Nothing more than a theological or academic intellectual exercise in which I can, I can, I can um, accrue more knowledge this morning and ultimately become puffed up. You know? I'm not looking to be a, a thriving Reformed church. Right? I'm not looking to be a thriving this church or that church. I'm looking to know Jesus Christ and to make Him known that we might be a holy people, that we might shine forth into the world. We will be persecuted for it, but we will be faithful and God will keep us. Um, I'm not looking for more programs. I'm not looking for this or that. Those things are good, but only if they're born out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if we will survive, and more than that, if we will thrive as a church, it will be because this morning when you came to Christ Bible Church, you heard not from a preacher, but you heard from God. 
That this morning, as revelation is written and as the word is proclaimed, it's not by the, 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 the intellectual uh, acumen of a man, it is God speaking. And God looks at every one of us with his piercing eyes, applying the word of God to the heart and making us more like himself, such that his presence is known in a way that his Grace and holiness and compassion is communicated to you. And at the same time, you run from the man that you used to be. This is where fathers are born. This is where godly mothers are born. This is where, where, where men learn to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Why? Because when God speaks, we must listen. And over the next seven weeks and maybe more, God will speak. And in the, the, the books after that, God will speak. But even more than that, God will not only speak, God will be present. How will we win? How will we be successful? Ultimately, those are, those are worldly. How will we be faithful? And we will be faithful by realizing the authority of Jesus Christ in his mediatorial office, as the word of God goes forth and its spiritual perfection, the spirit comes alongside it and makes us more like his son. That the reason that we will not be lost, and the reason that we will persevere is not because we're great men or great women, it is because we serve a faithful God who even in this moment is walking among the lampstands, doing his work. Some days it's a hard work, it's a difficult work. But what you have embodied in that is a, is a father who loves you. On this Father's Day, you know, we hold up men and rightfully so. But more than that, we recognize that the only reason that we're a father even worth commending is because Jesus Christ um, died for our souls and communicates the, the love of the Father to us so that we can love our children like Him. Um, so how do we prevent demise? How do we foster love? How do we attack sin? How do we uphold orthodox doctrine? How do, we, how do we die like men of God? How do we live like men of God? We live in the very presence of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way. That is literally the only way. Any other way makes Pharisees and atheists. And let us not be that. Let us this morning see Jesus Christ in all of His glory ascended to the right hand of the Father in some sense, God communicating this to us um, such that over the next several weeks we come expecting to hear from God and even to be in the presence of God. Um, otherwise, sin will run rampant in your lives. We'll have a name that we're alive but we're dead. And, um, and ultimately the light will go out. So let us thrive. Let us look for Christ. And let us live in His presence. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glory that is in Christ. Father, we thank You for the book of Revelation. What a blessing it is. Father, even in all of its imagery, even in all of its symbolism, even in all the things I don't understand, um, I recognize my own limitations and it just en enamors me more. Uh, it enamors me more, Father, um, of, of your character and nature. I just revel in your glory. Father, you write things so high and so lofty, yet at the same time you communicate them so low um, because I am slow. And um, 
what limitations I have, oh Father, you just condescend to the lowest and you put the, uh, the peanut butter and the jelly, Father, on the lower shelf because you know that I can't jump that high. God, how gracious you are in just communicating to us, Father, even in spite of our limitations. And um, as glorious of a picture as we hear and read here in John, Father, I know that you can't communicate the weight and the value and the gravity, Father, of who Christ is. But I'm so thankful, Father, that you continually do that in my life. And in the life of this church, Father, would you, would you help the people, Father, to recognize as well as myself that we're here not to serve ourselves and ultimately one another, that we are here to serve Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That this morning we are not apart from Him. And this morning He is not in some other place. Um, but this morning He is present among us, Father, walking among the lampstands, trimming our light, and that we might shine ever more for the glory of God. So, Father, may You accomplish that work this morning through Your Son. Father, may He be active within this church. May we not be a church that is that has a name that it's alive, but it's dead. Lord, we need to know whether we're spinning our wheels and wasting our time here. Father, we need to know that you're present among us. Father, so make yourself known in your Son. God, whatever it takes, make yourself known. Let the people know this morning and next week and every week to follow that you are the Lord of this church. That, Father, you are the one who governs by your sovereign hand the activity and continue to serve through your Son, this church, in so many fashions. Father, make yourself known in your Son. May they read the Word of God differently. May we hear the Word of God differently, Father. And make you make men alive and women alive and children alive. Father, why? Because they have been in your presence. And may this light burn, Father, until we give up our ghosts and ascend to high and heavenly places. Um, and finally, see our Savior and be like unto Him. Father, would you accomplish this for your Son's glory and exaltation and not our own? Father, would you remove all the impurities and make us a holy people as a result of the ministry here at Christ Bible Church? Not because we were special, but because your son was here. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.